Hello, I'm Ken Eastman, Dean of the Spirit School of Business. On this podcast, Addison Price, or Addie as we like to call her, and I give insight on business tips and tricks, how-tos and fun stories. Join us and a variety of guests on your walk to class or for a quick break in your day. This is the Buzz on Business. How you doing, Eddie? I'm pretty good. How are you? I am so excited to have our special guest with Me us. Me too. We have Andy Yurick with us today. Andy and I go back, uh, gosh, quite a while. You, even though I'm substantially older than you are, you have been here longer than me, correct? Well, I'm honored to be on your podcast. And, <laughs> and I know you said you wanted to talk about the old days, but it, it can't be the really old days. Because when you came to campus, I was already well ensconced. And as I recall it, I took you under my wing showed you the ropes and took care of you and got you started. Is that fair? Yeah, and I survived anyway. Yeah, there you exactly. go. How, you, how are you here today? So the punchline is I knew him when he was nothing and look at him now. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. The tutelage paid off. Who, who knew? Uh-huh, that's I'll exactly take, right. I'll take none of the credit. <laughs> that's right. None and but all the credit. all of the blame. Exactly. Yeah, all the blame is right. Well, we have so many fun topics that we want to talk about, but as rumor kind of started to circulate that you were going to be on the podcast today. Terry Tush, he is in the marketing department, for those of you that may not know. He said that we had to talk about back in y'all's long hair days. So when you guys had long hair, you guys maybe brought the mullet to OSU before Mike Gundy? I I did have a mullet. I I think um, we need to dive into it. you You were the full Fabio, though. I had a like long blonde hair in a ponytail. I stopped. I was so stressed out trying to get tenure and being nice to everyone. And I wore a sport coat every day for five years and uh, sat in my office all the time. And then the minute they gave me a uh, tenure, I stopped cutting my hair for two and a half years. And it looked very much like your hair, Addie. It was blonde, it was long, and I wore it in a ponytail. So I never had the mullet, but I can testify that the Dean had a mullet. You rocked a mullet. I, I did. I, uh, and when I was MBA director, every new group with great delight found the picture. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I've seen it. <laughs> I've, I've, tried, <laughs> I've tried to erase it from the internet, but that I hear it is impossible. And I feel embarrassed, to be clear, that, that I had a ponytail. Well, so, why yeah. not? Uh, I don't know. Rock it when you can. I guess. Are you going to grow it back out now? I might. There you no, go. I'm not. See? No, I'm not. <laughs> See, when I retire, I'm going to do a full letterman. The no shaving. Oh, no yeah. hair. I'm just going to look deal. like I came out of a cave. That's uh, that's my goal. Go incognito. That's right. I'm never going to retire, so I have no plan <laughs> for this. I'm going to be the last man standing. Where, where are you in seniority now? Do you know? I think there's um, three business professors who've been here longer. So wow. I'm in whatever. It's about 100, right? Yeah, there's three 110, that have yeah. been here longer than me, yeah. Yeah, that's hard to imagine. It is hard to imagine because I was the new guy. And in my, you know how it is for people listening. If you're older, you think of yourself as being, you know, yourself your whole life. And you're like, what happened? <laughs> I, I, used to be, I used to be the young guy. And if you've ever been in a fraternity, it's like, or a sorority, I imagine, it's like, you never know the new people. Mm-hmm. So like people are like, you know, so-and-so, I'm like, if they've been hired in the last 15 years, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> or last guy I remember, like, I think Pappas is the last new guy <laughs> I ever. Who's been here, what, 20 some years? years. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the right. last new guy I remember meeting. <laughs> I know it's kind of shocking to think, because I'm just a few notches behind you, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you are. You, you were, I think you were here. I was here three years before you, I think yeah. is, is how it. Yeah. I've hit the, I cracked the top 10. I maybe cracked the top wow. seven. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. And you missed the most fun three years of my tenure here, <laughs> just, just so you know. 
Well, you and I, I think we met playing softball. Yes. Right? And you keep having the story that you thought I didn't like you. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because I like everybody. I know, but, you know, I didn't know you were this kind of big city East Coast guy. And here I was, you know, Mr. Farm Kid. And you seem very worldly and wise. And Well, you must have been from a very small farm. (laughs) It was a very small farm outside a small town. Yeah, because I would just sort of like pick out people that I liked and try to be their friend. And I was having a hard time being your friend because I kept trying to pay attention to you and do stuff. And and you kept ignoring me. It was hard. It was funny on hindsight. Yeah, because I just thought you were making fun of me. I thought, well, God, I'm not going to hang around this guy. So was it you that didn't like him or was it him that didn't like you? Well, see, I thought he didn't like me. It was a mutual. You both didn't know if you liked I each other. I was very wary of him because uh, he seemed like he could smack me down on the heartbeat verbally, <laughs> not physically. And he's not a physical guy. But uh, I, I liked the dean immediately and spent a lot of time and effort trying to be his friend. And, and he d- questioned my motives, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it was. What do you I bet you don't remember. Uh, we had a double header. So we may have gone out for a libation in between and we're in the car back and you were single at the time. Uh, And I remember vividly you asked me, it just shocked me, said, please don't tell me that sex gets better after you're married. He did tell me this story. What? (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) what I said. Don't tell me, yeah. Yeah, don't tell me that. It would ruin my view of the world. I can't believe, A, we're talking about it. Here we are. I've since been married, so I know the answer. (laughs) And now I'm single again. So that should put that topic to rest. Okay. And that's the buzz on business. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You guys told me we're going to be all professional. And that's where we're going. No, here we are. We loosened it up. Yeah, I do remember that night. It was funny. I think I let you be the leadoff batter. And uh, I believe um, it was we played great, as as I recall. Yeah, we did. We had a little looser and uh, we were... (laughs) But yeah, that that's an example of why I was a little bit, uh, you, know, I, you know, for the 35 <laughs> years I've I've been here, this is my 36th year, and um, I think all of the students who who've been in my class would um would would tell you if if it popped into my head, I said it. <laughs> that's been my strategy. I was in your class in I think it was maybe 2018. And I will tell you, it was one of my favorite classes, and I loved it because for those of you that maybe haven't taken his class, I would highly recommend it. I think that it's maybe 50-50 on students that would say that, but I would highly recommend it because it did challenge the way that I looked at the world and the way that I thought about different things. So maybe will you share with us kind of like your tactic and your strategy and kind of how you go about your class and educating your students? Well, I'm, first of all, I want to apologize that you're in my class in 2018 because I was in a slump for a while. Well, it was and, uh, great still. Well, thank you. But it, you know, for, for 30 years or so, things were going great. I went into a little slump there. I switched from business law to people skills. And I, it took a while to find my feet. And I think it's because I went from the irreverent business law guy to the person who tells you to you know, cut your hair and be a solid citizen. And it took me a while <laughs> to figure it out. Also, I think I was in a cranky mood for a couple of years there. But I used to measure, you said it was about 50-50, and I think it was 50-50 in 2018. It used to run about, because I used to poll people at the end to see how they felt, and it used to go kind of 70% positive, 15 neutral, 15 super negative. And I, and I think I'm back this semester, because I'm having a great semester. We, I reorganized my attitude, and I reorganized class. So I think if you do take it now, I think we're, we're back to... Well, much more positivity. Yeah. Awesome. But you asked me what I do. It's I do try to challenge people. And Malcolm Gladwell, who writes one of the books we use in people skills, says the only thing college should do 
is challenge people. And I think it was 2019. I went to see Dean Eastman. I don't know if he remembers this or not, but I told him I'm tired of challenging people. People complain. People get mad at me. I said, I'm just not doing it anymore. And the dean said, no, you have to. He said, you, you can't quit. You have to do it. It's funny because the students think I'm going to get in trouble because they're going to go tell on me. And I'm like, I tried to quit. And the dean told me I have to do it. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, I, I did it. it. You know, I'm getting old. It's, it takes a lot of effort, you know, to say things that challenge people. And you could ask him if he remembers that. But I do remember it vividly. I, I was concerned that you were going to yeah, give it up. So I'm back. I'm back to challenging people. There you go. See, so enroll in the class. Because ideas are not supposed to be scary. Ideas are things that smart people like to think about. And I think if our you know, country was filled with smarter people who thought about ideas instead of automatically assuming they know the right answer on both sides, right, things we'd, we'd all be better off. Yeah, I agree. I, really yeah, I think agree. it's always one of the things that's impressed me about you. You, you probably know more about s stuff but believe you know less than most people I know. Well, my, my gift is to speak with moral certainty. <laughs> that's, that's what I do in class, and that's what I do when I do training for companies. I speak with moral certainty, but deep down, like I, I always tell people, I hope when I die, like you've been playing this game a long time, you go to some debriefing room, and they tell you like, what was the truth? What's the solution to poverty? You know, what should I have done with my life? Did I do the right thing? Go back and look at your decisions. So I really am racked with um, self-doubt. <laughs> yeah, you're doing that debrief like every hour of every day, I think. Uh, I'm trying to figure it out. I think it's, 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 a great, it's a great game, the game of life, the ultimate game. And, uh, you know, it doesn't seem fair if they don't tell you at the end what was going on. I've always thought, which this is maybe a little different, but I've always really wanted whenever I die, I want a full montage of my life. Like I want everything to play back with like a really great song to it so I can watch it and just maybe tear up a little bit. You know, like at the end of the Twilight series, which I hate I'm even bringing it up, there was like this whole montage of Bella and Edward's love and it was just so sweet and you just see it. That's what I want for my life. Well, you can tell I don't want young. the debriefing room. Yeah, no, see, we're not <laughs> going not to the same yet. place yeah. afterwards. <laughs> I'm not there yet. <laughs> Clearly, we're not going to the same place. What I want to do is say, you know, what if I would have done this instead of that? And it'd be like, oh, it would have been better. And I'd be like, damn, but I want to know. I also think it would be curious to know, especially since I teach people skills, like everybody's dealt a hand and you're dealt good cards and bad cards. And what I would like to know and I'm curious about everybody is how well did I play my hand? So in other words, did I really achieve the most I could have with this hand or could I, could I have been something? Right. And my class is to try to encourage my students to play their hand the best they can, but it would, after a lifetime of doing it, it'd be interesting if some magical power could tell you how you did. Well, along those lines, you know, you and I have talked, uh, you know, I grew up in a, small farm out of a small town. So I know there's a number of kids at OSU like me. How do you think they, the best way they can get to a point where they are more conscious of what they're doing, more aware of uh, uh, their limitations, not, maybe a, a lack of certainty that they're right? Well, I think, you know, you know, from running around, I mean, just, you know, being a worldly person now and running around in the circles you do, that probably any student we have is capable of unbelievable things, right? Because you, you've met some full-on morons who have accomplished amazing things. Exactly. And, and, and we're talking about not you, whoever's listening to this, <laughs> the other people, right, to be clear, right? But um, it really has to do with understanding how the game is played, 
right? And then being willing to make yourself uncomfortable or even scared. So what we try to do, and one of the reasons being challenged, so good for people, makes you uncomfortable. And if you can become um, comfortable enough being uncomfortable, then you can keep going out there and trying and putting yourself in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know you've traveled a lot. How do you think traveling, let's say, outside of Oklahoma, outside the state, outside of the U.S., how does that you think that contributes to that? Well, it makes it makes you uncomfortable because things are, things are very different. The people are very different. I took um, students to just Chicago, to sort of the major league of the Midwest, and we have certain students become agitated. Certain become aggressive. They they feel threatened just by walking down the street of Chicago and looking around at the strange at the strange situation. So I haven't been doing it lately because I'm an old dad. But for 26 years, I I like to work the you know, work the word schlep in whenever I can. I schlepped OSU <laughs> students to different. It was either Washington, New York, or Chicago every year for 26 years, plus Japan, London, Mexico, a couple of times till I was banned from the country. And that was what was so great about that. You'd see them get uncomfortable because everything's different. And, and you feel like you get a little frazzled and you get a little uncertain. Yeah. I, my first trip to New York was with you, uh, with the students. And that was we probably had, back in the 90s. Yeah. That was, I, think had, I don't know if you had freshmen or a year after you had freshmen. I can't remember. Uh, but that was my first trip there. Uh, it's and, overwhelming. Oh, it is. I mean, you're just, you know, holy cow, where'd all these people come from? And this, you know, remember we went to the, the one deli and you warned everybody when you get to the counter, it was like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld. Yeah. You've got to be ready to order. And you had schooled us, right? Sure enough, the kid right in front of me goes, uh, yeah. next. You know, the guy was, <laughs> yeah. the kid was like, would, wait, no, next. And it was like, we'd constantly be clogging up the sidewalk because if you grow up in a, in, you know, around here, you don't have this spatial awareness, but if you grow up, in you know, big city, at least back east, like you're constantly worried about, am I in their way? How's the line flow going? Are we moving to the right? And we would constantly be blocking up sidewalks. I remember, yeah, I remember. So I was Rowdy Yates. You young people could go look at Rawhide. So I was at the end, right? You were always leading the front, and so I was making sure the chicks kept moving along. And I remember the light changed. I had one fit on the curb, one in the gutter. Cab stops, rolled down his window, and goes, hey, next time I'm hitting you. That was very early in, in my tenure of taking people to New York. Because what I learned, and of course I can't resist saying what I think the business school could learn from this story is, after a few years of trying to shepherd them around New York, I started walking, and I didn't look back, and guess what they did? They paid attention and they kept up. When I tried to keep track of them, they'd shop over here, they'd go over there, they'd miss the light. They wouldn't pay attention. But when I walked and never looked back, they would scurry, they would pay attention, they would be careful, and they'd follow me. <laughs> okay, my dad and I, we went to New York, and it was both of our first times there. And as we're walking through Times Square, we're wanting to do all the touristy things, and we were only there for two days. My dad has always been a really quick mover. He's the dad that when you're going through any sort of airport security. He's already gone through and at the gate in under five minutes because you're there two hours early, but you still have to beat everybody else to the gate. And so we're in New York City. We're going through Times Square and he just starts to go every single time that there's an opportunity to go. He's not waiting for any of the traffic lights to stop. He's going just whenever you can. And there's other people doing the same thing. Well, he's five blocks in front of me and I'm looking around and every once in a while he would peek over his shoulder, but he would just keep moving. 
And I was so scared of what to do that I just start sprinting as fast as I can <laughs> trying to catch up. Well, then I look down for two seconds. There's this lady with a stroller and I almost, I don't, but I almost hit her in the stroller. And she looks up at me and she's like, watch where you're going. And is so mad. And I'd never had somebody be mad at me for walking somewhere. And it completely just stopped me in my tracks. And I looked up at my dad and I think he saw the deer in headlights like moment. And he looks back again, barely peeking over his shoulder, looks back, keeps walking. And I'm like sprinting to catch up with him. And I'm, did you see that dad? What happened? You know, what, what am I supposed to do? You keep walking, Addie. You keep going. You keep walking. You keep looking forward. I was like, I don't know what, where I am, but this is not Oklahoma. I felt like Dorothy and Wizard of Oz. We're not in Kansas anymore. It was a completely different experience. It's, it's a cultural thing. Yeah. And people move slowly around here. And I remember when I moved um, to Oklahoma and I would go to the grocery store and people are going a half a mile an hour. And I'm thinking to myself, when you, if you feel like you're dying too early, you should have moved faster. <laughs> you could have got more done. It's like, who walks slowly? I'm always in a hurry. Yeah, that, the, when I was in London, the, I noticed people just pick a faraway point and just walk. Yeah. You don't enter into the, you know, and it's amazing how people flow, but you get used to it. I noticed that after a few days, that's what I did. You just pick a point and you just walked and somehow people just flow around themselves. But you're right. You stop and gawk, you're going to be dead. It's true. And you said that don't look up, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, say, don't look, if don't you don't want to look like a tourist, don't right. look up at the buildings with a slack jaw, like, whoa, <laughs> whoa oh right? Every freak will come running. It's the sign, right. the slack jaw looking up at the buildings and all. So I was trying awe. to glance up yeah. slightly, like, yeah, you know. Yeah, plus the taxi's going to eat in a kneecap, <laughs> too, right. so you got to be careful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was one of my favorites. So we went, remember Gay Trivet? She was my helper way back, I think, in, in, in the mid-90s, and we, it was before cell phones, Addie, if you can even imagine, can't imagine how we functioned in New York. How did you do it? Well, it, it, you just followed, and somebody got lost. And Gay said to me, Andy, we lost somebody. And I'm like, go find them. And she said, I jumped off the train because I was more afraid of you than I was of New York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's like, how am I going to find him? She found him. How bad could it be? Right? There's only just a few Better people. Better than yelled at my Andy. Escape while you can. Well, I know that you taught in Japan for a little bit too. So how was that cultural experience? Kind of what was maybe even the differences between New York and the stories we've shared and Japan and how all of that worked? Well, I was so lucky. I got to spend a year in Japan and it was on behalf of OSU because we used to have a campus there, um, uh, OSU Kyoto. And I was, I was, I felt very lucky because I always wanted to try to live out of the country for a whole year. And it was back in an era before I was married where I was trying to travel around the world and have adventures. And of the, I went to about 50 countries back then. And Japan was by far the most different of all countries. And every of the other 49 I visited, you, human nature plays out the same way. You see human beings being self-interested, running their scams. And, and, you know, doing what humans do everywhere. And in Japan, it, it was different. And what was different, it was very, very collectivist. And people, it, you, you would go to a department store and they had four people standing by every cash register and security guards out front smiling and smiling at people. They wouldn't be talking, but they'd be smiling at people. And basically, there's no crime in Japan. You don't need a security guard. You could save a fortune by having one person at each cash register instead of four. But at that time, at least, Japan was how many people can we employ? Because that is a great thing to do. And everywhere else, you see the machinations of how do I make a buck? And Japan was very, very interested in 
um, you know, taking care of their people. And it was a very peaceful place, even though it's crowded. And um, I didn't fully appreciate it because I was young. But now I'd love to go back and have some peace in Japan. Yeah, we we took uh, students there, and you're exactly right. I mean, for a busy place, it's very quiet. And our, our tour guide that we had there uh, said, um, when you're on public transportation, do not talk. Yeah, it's very like, quiet. What? And, and uh, even, you know, they have, you know, they have signs everywhere. If you get a phone call, get up. Well, people would. They would go to the far corner, quietly talk on their cell phone, and uh, no one's eating. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's very, very different. And it's so honest. I used to, they, they have a coin that's worth about six or seven dollars. So you could have $80 worth of change in your pocket. And whenever I bought anything, I would scoop out my $80, hold my handful of change, and let them take however much it was because I could never figure out how money worked. And, and I, I knew I wouldn't be cheated. And here's the difference you want to talk about the old days. Here's the difference between the old days and the new days. I'm prone to hyperbole. And in the modern world, so I would say Japan is so honest. If you lay down in a subway station naked with $100 taped to you, if one of the $100 blew off, someone would go get it and tape it back to you. Okay? <laughs> and in the old days, everyone's like, well, that's a hyperbole that shows how safe it is. And nowadays, people would say, why would you want to lay down in a subway station naked? Why would you tape $100? Like, come on, man. It's a hyperbole. And it's one of the reasons my percentage is down to 50%. Because all I do is drop hyperbole, and they always take me literally. Uh, I, re I remember, and I'm telling you, it was one of my favorite things just because I think it paints pictures so well. And it just helps you kind of get this idea in your mind. And I, it was such an entertaining class. I mean, really, it's so fun. Once again, take it. If we're doing plugs for Andy's class, <laughs> take it. That's right. I tell people, too. It's nice of you guys. I wish I got paid by the student, but I don't. So <laughs> we're all big cares? fans. <laughs> Well, I, I got we back to New York. That was also, I think, the first time I met your dad. Yeah. George is one of my favorite people because uh, he's George. Yeah. Well, if, if you think I'm bad, you should meet my dad <laughs> because uh, I always tell my dad's friends that I'm, uh, I'm dad light and, and he is, uh, he's dad heavy. And I don't know if you wanted to hear the story about the, the New York story. Oh, yeah. So my dad grew up in New York City and he came to America when he was six years old from Austria. He was Jewish and he was escaping um, from, from the, they're after the Jews in Vienna. And he, and he came one month after they broke all the windows in, in, in Vienna. And he grew up in New York and he is an, he's a New Yorker. And he remembered New York a certain way. So he would come to New York to help us with my New York trip and he would tell me what to do. So we're coming out of the uh, of Grand Central Station at 10 o'clock in the morning and we're trying to get to the UN, which means we have to go east. So I say, I think this is East, I remember from last year. And usually it's easy because there's avenues and streets, but Grand Central Station's huge. You can't see the signs. Now, if you're an Oklahoman, Addie, did you grow up in Oklahoma? Yes, I did. So you have a compass in your head. Right now, you probably know which way East is. Yeah. See? But if you grow up <laughs> up North, it's like, we give directions like this. You go down there, then you go right, and it's over by there. There's none of this <laughs> East. Right. I came to Oklahoma. I'm like, hey, where's the soda machine? It's in the southeast corner. I'm like, what the hell am I a pilgrim <laughs> with a compass? So tr we just didn't know which way was east. Right. So my dad's pointing west, and he's like, I remember that's east. And I'm like, Dad, I'm pretty sure this is east. He goes, no, I grew up in New York. I know where east is. That's east. Right? I'm like, Dad, I remember last year. Trust me. So an Oklahoman comes up. Remember, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. He goes, look, the sun. 
right? There's <laughs> yeah, the sun in the east. Tell. And my father said, I don't care where the goddamn sun is. That's east, right? And, and it points <laughs> the other way. And to a certain extent, that's how I grew up with my dad. It was the way he's gonna, he says it's going to be, and it just is. So I try my dad's stuff on my kids. We get in the car, and they're like, oh, my goodness, the car is so hot. I'm like, no, it's not. And because my dad would say, no, it's not. And we would like, shut up. And my kids go, yes, it is. And I'm like, what do what I say now, Dad? Because we just accepted that it wasn't hot. Like, Dad, it's raining. No, it's not. You know? And we would just move on. And seriously, one of the greatest things about my dad, and I think this, I got this from him, is he decided how it was going to be, and it's going to be that way. And really, that's a helpful thing, right? I mean, it's helpful to keep moving forward and to insist the world is going to be the way you want it to be instead of the way it is. So it, it starts as a joke, but it really, and you know, Ken's been watching me for 35 years. So a lot of times they wanted it to be a certain way. And I kept throwing myself against the wall until the, I've stopped out of respect to my friend. Right? But in the old days, I would constantly throw myself against the administration because I wanted it to be my, the way I thought it should be. And we've had some things we had. Oh, yeah. The first class not offered for 16 weeks during, it used to be every class was 16 weeks during the day, came up with this idea we should have a night class that only runs for four weeks, and you thought it was going to be some sort of communist meeting or something, <laughs> but we flung ourselves at it, and you know that was one example of, of something that we insisted on changing, but... That is pretty amazing. Well, I know you do a lot of work, too, in the Easton Center, helping students be prepared and get ready for life post-college and job interviews and things like that. And I know that you also work with a lot of different companies on helping them build a better overall way to function and way to look at things and kind of cha challenging the way that they view um, what they're doing in their company. So what would you say is a big um, helpful tip almost for students who are trying to find their own identity and their own way of pursuing goals and dreams after college? Well, since you mentioned the Easton Center, we can maybe tell you how Joe Easton himself did it, because Joe Easton will, will tell you he came from Adair, and Adair is a small town on the way to Grand Lake, and I used to tease him because the sign used to have all capital letters, and I don't know why I thought that was funny, <laughs> but I always asked him, how come his town had all cap? I think they've changed the sign now. But um, another thing you got changed. Yeah, <laughs> we, got, we, got, we got the proper capitalization <laughs> on, on the Adair sign. So Joe Easton was in my class, and um, he signed up for the first travel trip that I ever went on, in, and I believe it was 1991, and we were going to Washington, D.C., and he did not have enough money for a plane ticket, so he got together with his friend, and they got a party van from, I think it was his friend's dad, and they got another student, and they were all going to pitch in for gas and drive to Washington, D.C., and this is uh, a, a young man from a small town in Oklahoma, and then when they got there, they realized to park a party van in Washington was a hell of a lot more than three plane tickets. So they ended up losing money on the deal. But Joe Easton um, would tell you that, that that experience of going to Washington, D.C., and we met, we met you know, people in government, we went and visited meetings, that, that, that one of the things that you can do to pursue your dream is find out what's out there because you don't even know necessarily what you can do. I always say a lot of people when you ask them what's their job, they're either going to be a lawyer or what their mom or dad or uncle is because that's all they know there is. And there are literally thousands of really cool jobs out there. And the first thing is to figure out 
what's out there and you just kind of follow a hunch. You get a hunch that like, I like entertainment or I want to make money writing. And you think of what you really want to do. You start looking for how people make money doing that. And I think, you know, Joe Easton says he, he got a big sort of splash of, of the world there on that, on that, on that trip. And he saw, um, what, what, what was out there. Yeah. It's that whole challenging yourself, going back to just challenging yourself and changing the way that you view things. Yeah. And I, even how he started his company, you know, he, they bought that software, didn't really know what to do with it and then kept poking around with it. And lo and behold, uh, something happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and following hunches, putting yourself in a position for good things to happen, surrounding yourself, you know, he's figure, you know, I try to get the smartest friends you can. And one of the things that we talk about in, in my people skills class is that you become the average of who you spend most of your time with. So you want to have smart friends. And how do you get smart friends? You become smart yourself. So the better person, that's why we call our people skills. We're not putting lipstick on a pig. We are helping you do personal development. So you become a better person so you can get a better job and have better friends. I think one what, what advice you said, and I always do this now, they said, when you're in a meeting, look around and find the chump. If you can't see one, it's you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so I remember that now and it, it's come in handy a couple of times. Go, oh, <laughs> wait a minute. I'm, I'm the, the chump. chump. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. I need to rethink this whole, uh, how I'm going to do this. So exactly. Well, you, you, uh, off, a lot of people don't know you had a, uh, burgeoning law career uh, yeah. before you went to academia. So can you, uh, uh well, I, I wanted to, I went to a law school. I just said people go to law schools. They don't know what they want to do. <laughs> right. And I went to law school because, um, people told me when I, I was obnoxious and argumentative because I was dad light, like you should be a lawyer. Cause I argued with everybody. Right. And, and, and so I, you know, it, it sticks in your mind as, as, as a kid to, to go to law school. Also there's TV shows where lawyers come off looking pretty good. They have nice cars, right? They're, they're on, on TV, they're always like dating other people's wives and, you know, having lots of drama in their life. And then I went, I went to law school and it was miserable <laughs> because you just, oh, you know what else I thought? I was trying to decide between MBA school and law school. And I swear to you, I said to myself, in MBA school, your answer can be just wrong, zero. But in law school, even if you have no idea what it is, you can probably BS your way to a 50. <laughs> so I started thinking, I'm halfway done with law school, and I haven't even gotten All kidding aside, seriously, that was part of my thought process. Um, so when I became a lawyer, I found what is a big, there's lots of different kinds of law, but a lot of law is very much like being an accountant. You wear nice clothes and sit in a chair, and you read and you write and you cross T's and dot I's, even if you're a trial lawyer, 93% of trials settle. So you end up preparing for trial and never going. And it was just, um, my mind was wandering just like when I was in third grade and I wanted excitement. And um, it was, I couldn't sit in the chair any longer. And I always wanted to be a professor. And so I was, um, the minute I became a lawyer, basically, I started applying to become a business law professor. But you did try one case, right? Oh yeah, so my record was um, I won my first trial and retired undefeated. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm 1-0. And people Hall say, do you want to try another one? Absolutely <laughs> not. I, absolutely not. I may never retire, but I'm not gonna try another case. I don't wanna, it's like a boxer who's 1-0, who's undefeated. Put it down in Wikipedia. Well, I think to kind of close this out, I would love to end with the question of 
I know that in your class, you do talk about teaching self-awareness and your own personal growth. And so how do you feel like students can be more self-aware? So self-aware is the big trap. And I I feel so fortunate to teach this class because I keep getting to remind myself of the things I should be doing. And I, you know, no one ever knows whether they have self-awareness. I hope I do, but it doesn't mean I do. I try. I'm willing to believe anything negative about myself because that, that's, that's how it works. So what we try to do is we've now, even since 2018, we've got some new exercises that, that we do. And, and one of them is we look at some of the, the negative cognitive biases of, of human beings, which is we tend to overvalue things we're good at. We tend to judge ourselves in a shinier light than we do other people. We tend to forgive ourselves for our ethical slips. And then, and then what we try to do is we try to create scenarios where you, you, you um, evaluate other people, and then you also have to evaluate yourself. So if you go through and do this 10 times, you see that, well, most people do this, but I'm special. And then most people do this, but I'm special, right? And, then, and at the end, you're like, could I really be that special? <laughs> could it really be that humans do all these foolish and mean and unkind and unfair things, but I don't? So that's, and that was on my mind because that was the most recent paper they write. Since you are in the class, we now have these self-reflection papers where the whole idea is to reflect on yourself. And a lot of them are behavioral interview type questions where it's, tell us about a time you judged somebody unfairly. Tell us about a time where you chickened out. You wanted to do something, but you didn't do it. So really, um, in, in class now, you write eight units worth of work and all of the writing is about you and about your, your experiences, and we're hoping that that gives self-awareness because, you know, as probably everybody knows, self-awareness, without self-awareness, it's very hard to improve, and there are so many advantages that research shows from, from having self-awareness. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, my kids used to accuse me of being the dream crusher uh, because, you know, we tried to tell people, oh, you can do anything you want. Well, no, you can't really. Yeah. Right. So just be aware. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And move that way. Uh, but yeah, you're right. the, you're the dream crusher, like my nephew's like, I think I'm going to be, he says junior in high school. I think I'm going to be a dentist. I'm like a dentist. I'm like, I don't want to be the uncle who crushes your dream, but you're flunking biology <laughs> and you don't brush your own teeth. Why don't we start with personal hygiene as the goal? As soon as you get your own teeth shined up, then we'll be looking towards other people's teeth, right? And there is, you know, it, it, I joke about it, but there is this certain thing. Upper middle class people are phenomenally skeptical and even cynical. They don't think anything's going to work, so they always hedge. Right? They're not investing in harebrained schemes. They're putting their money in an index mutual fund in their 401k. They're working for big companies that can't go under. Right, And unsuccessful people much more likely to believe that crazy things are going to work out. And that's why every once in a while, one of them hits it big. And thankfully, they write us a big check. And again, I don't mean you. I mean the, I mean the other people. If you listen to this, it's not you. It's the other big donors. Well, it, but but it, then it perpetuates the myth, right? Because eventually, one's going to get lucky and hit. And then everybody else thinks, well, see? Yeah. And the straight-A student, ironically, is much less likely to stray from what's safe and much less likely uh, to take a big risk, right? Because the A student, I love telling his story is the, a, the straight A student, when they get their straight A's, they feel no joy, it's pure relief. <laughs> oh my goodness, thank goodness, 
I didn't get a B. There's no joy, right? I used to dream when I was in college that I'd gotten an A and I woke up like, oh, oh, yeah, that'll never happen. Right? <laughs> and, you know, it was like, it was just a dream. But for them, there is no joy. And consequently, that same thing that makes them fear a B can make them fear going out and failing. And that's why another thing we do in people skills is we ask you, have you failed enough this week? Right? What did you do to fail this week? What are you going to do to fail next week? Because if you fail enough, you're not afraid anymore. And then you can start taking big chances, have great things happen, and write a huge check <laughs> to the business school. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I've met a lot of alums since I've been dean, uh, and their GPAs are between two and three. Closer to 2.5 than to yeah. 3. Because, right, they were done, they, but they were, weren't afraid of taking risks. They did some things, you know, had a little luck, but they also would take the risk that would pay off. Smart risks. Yeah, and if you have a lot, like if you've got a good job offer, right, and a lot of safety, there's no reason going off on your own. But if you can't find a job, might as well start a business, <laughs> That's right? right? That's one of the things that, that works out for people. What we want to do is we want to get you know, our smartest, ambitious, careful students to go out and take those risks because that'd be even more amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do with people's skills. I agree. Well, Andy, it's been a, a pleasure to have you here and it's been an honor to be your friend for a, a long time. Well, it's, you know, I, I feel like I've been so lucky uh, to be at OSU. This, I always tell my students, you know, to get your dream job. This was my dream job. I, I didn't know, I always knew I wanted to be a professor. And it's, you know, 35 years. I, um, I think I'll, I'll be here till I'm the, the, have the most seniority because I love it. And I appreciate being employed by OSU. And I thank you for letting me be on your podcast. Woohoo! Thank you so much. And now today in history for September 28th. In 1918, the Spanish flu infected thousands in Philadelphia after the Liberty Loan Parade. Philadelphia was the hardest hit city in the United States with over 12,000 Philadelphians dying from the flu. The Spanish flu remains the world's worst flu epidemic in history and estimated 30 million people died worldwide. In 1928, Alexander Fleming accidentally discovers penicillin. While working at his laboratory at St. Mary's Hospital, London, Alexander Fleming noticed that many of his culture dishes were contaminated with a fungus that had a positive antibacterial effect on multiple organisms, providing the basic block for the start of modern antibiotics. Many believe that the discovery of penicillin is one of the most important discoveries of the last century. In 1968, the Beatles' Hey Jude single goes number one and stays number one for nine weeks. It is over seven minutes long and was the longest song ever to hit number one, a record it holds to this day. Which makes me wonder, you know, Don McLean, American Pie was actually longer, but I think they shortened it by half for the radio version. And join us next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>